Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, welcome back. Uh, just a reminder, before we begin, this is probably self-evident, uh, but we will not have class next week, <coughs> because next week, of course, is Thanksgiving. So you're welcome to show up, but I won't be here. Um, but we will gather, God willing, the following week, so just please make a note of that. Well, we uh, come today to Matthew chapter 5 and to what is perhaps the most famous section of the Gospel of Matthew, aside from the story of the resurrection, and that, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher the world has ever known. Countless numbers of books have been written about the Sermon on the Mount, and I did a whole series on the Sermon on the Mount when I first arrived at St. Philip's. So somebody asked already, are you going to uh, go into great depth with this? Well, we're not going to simply skim through it, as you can well imagine. Um, that's not my custom, but I will say that we're not going to deal with it in as great a depth as we did when I did that series a couple of years ago. So if you are still interested in really going deep on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's certainly worth your time and your energy, uh, you can pull up that series. It is available online, or we can make copies of the CDs available to you. But we are going to take a look at it today, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're just going to read through the first 16 verses. Uh, this, as I said, is perhaps the most familiar section of the Gospel of Matthew, and the first 16 verses of the Sermon on the Mount are the most familiar section of this sermon, uh, the section known as the Beatitudes. So let's go ahead and look at what Jesus said, and then we'll come back and Discuss it in further detail. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. And be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, as with all sermons, all good sermons, that is, there should be focus. One of the worst things that can ever be said about a sermon is you come out of church and you say, I don't have any idea as to what that was all about. And we've perhaps all had that experience, never at St. Philip's, but in other places you come out of church and you have no idea what's really been said. When I was in college, we had a college professor, and um, he would invite students over to his house for Sunday dinner. And he was a Christian, and he would invite us over. He was uh, the leader of the Christian Fellowship on campus, and he would invite us over. And we would sit around uh, the dining room table, and we always went. If you were invited, you always went to this professor's house for two reasons. First of all, the food that was offered there was so much better than what we got in the cafeteria. That was the first reason. And the second reason is if you were a boy, he had a beautiful daughter. So we always showed up when we were invited to go for Sunday dinner. But there was a price to be paid because we would sit there around the dining room table 
And he would always ask the question, what was the sermon about in church? So first of all, he was testing to see if you went to church, if you got up, and second of all, he wanted to know if you were listening. And it was interesting. If the sermon was focused, uh, if it was well-crafted, um, you could explain what the sermon was all about. On the other hand, if it was sort of like the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and sometimes sermons feel that way, I know, you had no idea what the sermon was about. It was very difficult to explain it. So when I became a preacher, it was one of the things I always tried to strive for was to focus. You, you may hear one of my sermons and perhaps walk away from it and think, well, I didn't agree with that, but hopefully you'll at least know what it was about. So focus is very important, and that is exactly what Jesus' sermon has. It has focus. It has a theme. There is a message that Jesus is attempting to impart here in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And what is that theme? Well, the theme, or the subject of the sermon, of course, is the kingdom of God. And that's what we've seen through the first four chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is proclaiming to the world that the Jesus Christ, who was born in great humility and poverty in Bethlehem, was in fact the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was not just come to be the King of the Jewish people in particular, but to be the King of the world. And we can see that this is a theme that goes through those chapters over and over again. When John the Baptist, the great forerunner of the Christ, appeared in the Judean wilderness baptizing people, he was telling them to come out and repent. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. And why were they to repent? Because the kingdom of God was nigh. The kingdom of God had arrived. And we took a look last week at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We are told that according to Matthew, at least, he picks up the narrative partway through. Jesus begins his ministry up there in Galilee, and what was the message that Jesus proclaimed? We're told that he went about and he healed those who had infirmities, and he proclaimed the same message, incidentally, that John proclaimed, that people were to repent, they were to turn from their wickedness and come to God. Why? Here was the motivation, the kingdom of God had arrived. So this is a major theme, and you don't have to read far through the New Testament to realize that this is not just a theme of the Sermon on the Mount or the first opening chapters of Matthew. This is a major theme of Jesus' ministry. This is really what it's all about. You cannot understand the New Testament, the message of the New Testament, unless you understand this theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has arrived. Think about Jesus' parables. So often he would say things like, the kingdom of God may be compared to, or the kingdom of God is like whatever it may be. So this is a major theme of Jesus' ministry, and it's not surprising then when we come to this most famous of all sermons that the theme, the subject of the sermon should be the kingdom. Now what kind of a kingdom is it that Jesus came to proclaim? What kind of a kingdom is it that is announced here in this Sermon on the Mount? Well, we need to say first and foremost that it is a spiritual kingdom. Uh, this was something that the disciples didn't always understand. They didn't understand it during the three years of Jesus' ministry, and I'd like to say that after the resurrection, it all became clear to them, but even then, it was not clear to them. Because you will recall that immediately after the resurrection, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, Jesus is conversing with his disciples over the course of 40 days prior to his ascension. He's meeting with them. He's opening the scriptures to them that they might understand in the wake of his Easter victory what it's all about. And at some point, they come to Jesus and they said, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Which tells us that the kind of kingdom that the Jews imagined in the first century, and the disciples as well, was going to be some kind of earthly kingdom, a physical kingdom. The expectation was that the old Davidic dynasty, the glory days of Israel, are going to be restored. The king is going to come. He's going to drive out all of Israel's enemies. In this particular instance, it would be the Romans. And he is going to reestablish Israel among the princes of the earth. That, that was the idea, and that's what everybody expected. And that's the reason why the disciples oftentimes squabbled with each other about who was going to be the greatest. Because it's nice to be close to the king. And so when the king comes and he establishes his throne and he is preeminent and he drives out all of his enemies, won't it be nice to sit one at his right hand, one at his left, when he comes into his glory? And of course, Jesus had to explain to them, fellows, that is not the way it is. 
When Jesus came to establish a kingdom, he came to establish not a physical kingdom, not a kingdom that advances by force of arms, or a kingdom that has boundaries and territories. It was a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to build. And that's exactly what he says in that opening chapter of the book of Acts. He said, it is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so it's a spiritual kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Now, when we hear that word spiritual, many of us want to roll our eyes and say, oh, that kind of a kingdom. I thought you were talking about a real kingdom. Because that's the way we think, isn't it? We, we think that those things that we can observe with our senses, the things that we can touch, we can see, we can handle, that's reality. But spiritual things, well, spiritual things, that's, that's not real. We won't say that it has no value, but we think to ourselves, that's not reality. Well, that just goes to show you that we are the products of the 18th century Enlightenment. That's what we have been taught to believe. But actually, the New Testament holds that it's the spiritual things that are actually real, and it's the physical things that are passing away. But that fact aside, when we talk about spiritual matters, what Jesus is not talking about is something that is ethereal. It's not about something that can't be seen. It's not something that can't be experienced. When Jesus says that he has come to establish a spiritual kingdom, what he really means by that is that he has come to establish a kingdom that is established by the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that's what we mean when we talk about a spiritual kingdom. We mean a kingdom which is established, governed, controlled, and advanced by God the Holy Spirit. It's not a kingdom that advances by human effort, but it is a spiritual kingdom. And because it is a kingdom that is established by the Holy Spirit, who, as we say every Sunday, is the Lord and giver of life, it is a very real kingdom. It is a kingdom that can be experienced in a person's life. And this is why the Apostle Paul was such a powerful witness for the gospel. His was the testimony of a changed life. What was Paul prior to the Damascus Road experience? He was a persecutor of the church, wasn't he? He had persecuted the church. He believed that the Christian gospel was a damnable deceit. And by that I mean that he believed that these people that were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah was actually leading his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, astray. And so Paul made it his life's ambition as a Pharisee to go out and stamp out this deceit with everything in his power. And we're told that he was deputized by the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, to go the whole way up to Damascus and to arrest those Christians and bring them back for trial and for execution. You've heard me say before, the Apostle Paul was... And in a very real sense, at least in terms of the church, he was the Heinrich Himmler of his day. He wanted to stamp out those Christians, men, women, and children, and bring them back for trial and execution. But the man who set out from Jerusalem and went to Damascus came back to Jerusalem a different man. He who had persecuted the church became the greatest champion for the church. Now let me tell you something, that's a change. <laughs> And that is more real than any physical kingdom the world has ever experienced, you see. The kingdom of God had arrived in the heart of the Apostle Paul, and Christ reigned as sovereign over that man's life. And that's what we mean by the kingdom of God. That's where God reigns in His people's lives. And when there is that kind of a transformation, let me tell you, it is more real than anything you can touch or taste. So when we talk about a spiritual kingdom, that's really what we mean. It is a real kingdom. And you can truly see the difference that it makes in people's lives. And because the story of humanity is nothing more than the story of individuals writ large, the more people whose lives are transformed, the more society and the world is transformed as well. So it is a real kingdom. It is a once and it is a future kingdom. Now, that is to say, it is a kingdom that is advancing soul by soul and silently, as we will see. 
but it is a kingdom that will one day, and this is made very clear, take over the kingdoms of this world. Uh, keep your finger there in Matthew for just a minute and turn to the very last book of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 11. You are very familiar with these words, even if you're not familiar with the text itself, you're familiar with these words because I'm sure most of you, especially as we approach Advent and Christmas, are familiar with the Messiah by George Friedrich Handel. And this is where uh, one of the most famous lines from that piece of music comes. It comes from uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, and we read this, and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. Now, where does that come from? It comes, of course, from not just Messiah, but it comes from the most famous section of Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus. But that's the idea that this kingdom of God is advancing. That's what Jesus told his disciples. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus was basically saying, and soon the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and I shall reign forever. And they saw some of this in their own lifetime. At the time that, that Jesus spoke these words, the most powerful empire on earth was the Roman Empire. And at the time that the Apostle Paul had his life transformed and began to live under the kingship of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the kingdom of God, the Roman Empire was antagonistic toward the gospel. Let's not forget that the Apostles Peter and the Apostle Paul, the two most famous apostles, were martyred. Under whose authority? Rome's authority, Caesar's authority. And yet within 300 years of the proclamation of this gospel, do you realize that the Roman Empire was eventually brought to its knees and became Christian? That is the most remarkable success story the world has ever known. The kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And that's exactly what we see. So that's what this sermon is really all about. It is about a real kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. And what Jesus does here in the Sermon on the Mount is He paints for us a picture of what it looks like to be a citizen of that kingdom. So this is, this is the theme of the New Testament, the kingship of Christ, the kingdom of God. And now what Jesus is going to do, having proclaimed that message, is he is going to sit down and paint a picture for the people. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. He's going to paint a picture for them and for us of what it looks like to be a citizen of that kingdom and a subject of that king. Now, you can read these few chapters of Matthew's Gospel, sit down and read through the entire Sermon on the Mount in about ten minutes. So I want you to understand this is really a compilation and, and not only a compilation, but really a distillation of what Jesus was teaching on several other occasions. Uh, Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount as well. So this is really sort of a, um, a Reader's Digest condensed version of things that Jesus was teaching elsewhere. And Matthew is functioning as an editor, and he's giving us the high points. Jesus would have unpacked this in much greater detail. But this seems to be a continuous theme of his ministry for the three years that he walked this earth. So we're not getting everything here. What I'm going to try to do is, and I certainly won't do it nearly as well as I know the Lord did it, and that is to unpack some of this, but just so you can understand it a little bit better and understand the implications that it has for our lives. Now, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a scholar to realize the minute that you begin to approach the Sermon on the Mount that you are faced with a problem. And the problem is the incredibly high moral standard that the Sermon on the Mount sets. Uh, there's not a person in this room. There's not a person in this country. There's not a person in the world, save Jesus Christ himself, who in and of their own strength and their own power has ever lived up to the standard that we see presented in the Sermon on the Mount. That, that's just a fact. None of us has ever done it. And anybody who thinks they have done it has deluded themselves in the same way that the rich young ruler deluded himself 
when he thought that he'd kept all the commandments, and as you heard this past Sunday, he had failed to keep the very first one, and as a consequence, had broken all the rest. (laughs) Nobody has ever lived up to this very high moral standard, and as a consequence, it has caused many people to ask whether the Sermon on the Mount was ever really intended to be taken literally. In other words, is Jesus really describing the way you and I are expected to live today? Is this a sermon for the here and the now, or is it something else? And I want to suggest to you three views that have been offered, at least in the 20th century, as to what the Sermon on the Mount was intended to do and what it was intended to be. The first view is the view that is held by dispensationalists. Now, I'm not going to go into dispensationalism here. We don't have a lot of time to do that. But the dispensationalists were Christians who, I think, took the Bible seriously. Uh, They were particularly popular in the 1920s and 30s, although there are still pockets of dispensational in parts of the world today. Um, The Left Behind series, if you've ever read the Left Behind series, that's basically a dispensationalist view of the end times. Dispensationalists believe that history can be divided into different dispensations, different time periods. Uh, Their argument is that Jesus Christ came to announce the kingdom, the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. And what happened was that he came to his own people and he proclaimed it and his own people rejected it. And as a result of that, Jesus went then to the Gentiles. That's another dispensation, another time period. But one day, Christ is going to come again. And when he comes again, he will judge the quick and the dead. There'll be a rapture of the, of the church. There'll be those who are left behind. You, you, if you've read that series, you know all about this. And that finally, at the end of history, what Jesus will do was he will establish his kingdom permanently. And when that kingdom is established, then what you see pictured here in the Sermon on the Mount will become reality. But it will only become reality then. So it is a picture of a future millennium. It is a picture of a a future kingdom, but it is not a description of what we are going to experience in the here and now in this broken and fallen world. That's the view of dispensationalism. What's the problem with it? Well, the problem with it is that Jesus seems to suggest throughout this sermon that this is a message for the people of that time and that it is a message for us as well. It is not just a picture of the future, of what things are going to be like when the lion lies down with the lamb and the child plays over the adder's hole. This is supposed to be a picture of the church today. So there's a problem with the dispensationalist view. Now here's the second view of what the Sermon on the Mount is. Because it's such an incredibly high moral standard and nobody's ever attained it, if it's not a picture of a future kingdom that will one day be realized when Christ comes again, then perhaps it is simply meant to be a picture of a high moral standard that drives us to the cross. Now this is the view of what I would call Lutheran orthodoxy. Now the Lutherans historically have taken seriously the Bible Sola Scriptura, they believe that the Bible is an authority for our lives. This is the historic view. There are liberal Lutherans, just as there are liberal Anglicans and liberal Methodists and Presbyterians as well. But historically, Lutherans have believed that the Bible is the Word of God. But they also understand that there's this tension between law and grace. And perhaps you've heard about that a little bit. Lutherans love to emphasize the law and grace conflict. And what they basically argue is that the law was given for a pedagogical function. That is, the law was intended to be for us a schoolmaster. The purpose of the law, Lutherans insist, and they are correct on this because it's exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans. The purpose of the law is not to keep us from sinning. The Ten Commandments are not meant to keep you from sinning. You'll recall when Moses came down from the mountains with the Ten Commandments, what did he find the people doing at the bottom of the mountain? Worshiping the golden calf. Now, what was the first commandment? You shall have another gods before me. So, if the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to keep people from sinning, when Moses gives them the Ten Commandments, they've already broken it before he's given it to them. This is generally the way it works. You know, if you've got children or grandchildren and one does something to the other, you oftentimes say, don't hit your sister. Now, you could translate that into biblical language. Thou shalt not hit thy sister. But why do we do that? 
we generally give them the law, we generally give them the commandment, what? After the trespass has already taken place. <laughs> so the purpose of the law, Paul said, and Lutherans piggyback on this, the purpose of the law is not to prevent us from sinning, it is to reveal the fact that we have. The purpose of the law is like a mirror. You can look in a mirror and see that your face is dirty, but the mirror cannot wash your face. What does the mirror do? It drives you to the soap and water, doesn't it? That's what the mirror does, and that's what the law is intended to do. And so Lutherans say that's what the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to do. It's such a high moral standard, nobody can attain to it, and it's by recognizing that you can attain to it that you are driven what? You are driven to Jesus Christ and to His grace and to His mercy and to His pardon and to His forgiveness. Now, that is a... There is part of that that I think is absolutely correct. I, I think that is part of why the Sermon on the Mount is given. It is to set such a high moral standard we realize we cannot attain to it. And it does drive us to Jesus Christ as our only hope of mercy. But the problem with saying that that's all the Sermon on the Mount was intended to do, that it's not meant to teach us how we are to live our lives, the problem with that is that toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says very clearly, you'll know them by their fruit. In other words, you will know the citizens of the kingdom of God by the way they live their life. So while the Lutherans, I think, get it partly right, they don't get it completely right. Now here's a third view regarding the Sermon on the Mount. Some have said, well, it's really not about a future kingdom, and it's not simply about driving people to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The third view is what is known as the social gospel view. It was very popular in the early part of the 20th century, espoused by people like Walter Rauschenbusch and so forth. And the basic view of the social gospel movement is that the Sermon on the Mount gives us a formula for how we transform the world. As I said, this was very popular in the 1920s and 30s. It is not so popular today. It has fallen out of favor. And the reason it's fallen out of favor is because of the 20th century, the latter half of the 20th century. What happened in two world wars, what happened with mass genocide in Germany and elsewhere, uh, years of recessions and depressions and so forth, people are not as confident in a social gospel. You see, in the early part of the 20th century, most people believed that humanity was on the upswing, that, that mankind was basically good. And it was only a matter of presenting people with opportunities and education. And if you give them enough opportunities, enough education, and enough motivation, what they will do is they will sort themselves out. That, that was the belief. And, and, and apply to this the whole notion of Darwinian evolution. And I'm not talking about the provisional biological theory. I'm talking about the idea that mankind is evolving and getting better morally, socially. It's called social Darwinism. It's taking that provisional biological theory and applying it to life. And that's what many people believe. Humanity's getting better. The world is getting better. The 19th century had been characterized by warfare and bloodshed, the Napoleonic Wars, the American Civil War, and all of that. But eventually, humanity was going to sort itself out because we were educated. We were better. We were growing up, as it were. And that's why World War I was viewed as the war to end all wars. We just commemorated the 100th anniversary of the signing of the armistice on Sunday. It would be the war to end all wars, but did it? 20 years later, 1939, Hitler was blitzing Danzig, Poland. And the war was, the world was at it again, you see. So when you say, well, this is just a formula for getting better and better, try that. How did it work for us? Not so well. So if the Sermon on the Mount is not simply a picture of a future time, because Jesus indicates that it really is meant to apply to our lives here and now, if it is not simply a matter of driving us to the cross because Jesus said you will know them by their fruits, in other words, it's not just about coming to Christ, it is also about living a holy life, and if this is not merely a formula for a social gospel that will transform the world apart from the Spirit of God, 
what is the Sermon on the Mount meant to be for us? That's the question. I want to suggest to you three things. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount, first of all, as you see on the screen, is to drive us to a recognition of our own inadequacy. The Lutherans got that part right. When you read through the high moral standards set forth in the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly realize that you don't achieve it. Just listen to these opening verses. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. How many of you think that that is a recipe for happiness? That is not a picture of happiness. How would the world translate it? How would the world put it? If the world was to rewrite the Beatitudes today, how would the world write them? Well, it would probably say, blessed are the proud and confident, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who are joyful and happy-go-lucky, for people shall like to be around them. Blessed are the strong, for they shall overcome and inherit the earth. Blessed, and the list goes on and on. We would completely rewrite these Beatitudes because what Jesus describes here is so contrary to what our world says. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, it becomes very clear that one of the purposes is, yes, to acknowledge the fact that we do not achieve this standard. We fall tragically short of it, every single one of us. How many of us really are poor in spirit? And we'll unpack what that means. The world tells us we should be self-confident. We should have a PMA. You know what a PMA is? Positive mental attitude. You are a good person. Isn't that what we're taught? We tell our children, you are a good person. Well, that's pretty contrary to what the Scripture teaches us. If we were good people, what would be the need of a Savior? Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our what? Sins. Well, if you're a good person, you don't have that. You don't need the Savior, you say. Blessed are those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the meek shall inherit the earth. Most of us think the meek shall inherit the dirt. This is a very different picture. And so one of the purposes of the Sermon on the Mount is that when we really examine our lives, set against this, it does function like a mirror. It reveals how tragically short we fall of the mark. Second thing, this sermon is meant, oh boy, I'm having all kinds of problems today. That's not supposed to, oh my goodness, just ignore that. There is supposed to be something else down here. Well, just ignore that up there on the screen for just a minute. There should be two other things on the bottom of the screen, so I'm going to give them to you because they're important, but evidently I ran out of space down there. First thing it does is it drives us to recognize our inadequate. Second thing it does is it forces to turn to Jesus Christ for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. The Lutherans got that part right as well. So when you read the high moral standard, it forces you to recognize your inadequacy. It drives you to Jesus Christ as your only hope for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And here's the third thing that it does. Having turned to Jesus Christ, it then allows you to be filled with the Holy Spirit and having been filled with the Holy Spirit to live now the Christ-like life. So it's that third part that the Lutherans left out. They got the first part right. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to force us to recognize that we don't measure up. Second thing it's meant to do is force us to come to Jesus Christ, admit that, and ask for His mercy and His forgiveness. But the third thing it does is once we turn to Jesus Christ, what happens? His Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. This is what Paul, writing to the Colossians, meant when he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, you understand, Jesus Christ, 
doesn't just save you, pluck you as a brand from the burning. He comes to transform your life in the same way that He transformed the life of the Apostle Paul. That's why Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. It's not that the fruits, and it's fruit, you'll notice. That's how He describes good works. Fruits, not works, but fruit. A tree that is healthy doesn't have to work at producing fruit. It happens what? Naturally. If, if the apple tree is, is healthy, it's going to produce apples. If you go out and you plant an apple tree with the purpose of it producing apples because you want to make pies or whatever, and it doesn't produce fruit, what's it good for? It, it's not good for anything. And second of all, you recognize there's something wrong with it. You go back to Hyams or whoever you purchased it from, you say, there's something wrong with this tree. What's wrong with the tree? It's not producing fruit. So that is what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to do. When we read through this and we say, blessed are the meek. Well, I know I'm not meek. That reminds us of our inadequacy. It reminds us that there's nothing we could do to become meek people. And so we go to Christ and we ask for His grace and His mercy. And what He does is He sends His Holy Spirit into our lives to transform us so that we are made into the image of Jesus Christ. We think with His mind. We act with His heart. And we live the Christ-like life. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is meant to do. There was a famous poem, and I'm sorry that it's up there in the corner of the screen. You'll see it in a moment. It was supposed to be in the middle of the screen, but technology is what it is. It's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? But there was a famous um, ambassador to the United States from Great Britain uh, during the First World War. He was actually responsible for working with President Woodrow Wilson and getting America into the First World War, and I thought it would be an appropriate illustration uh, given what we have just commemorated. And um, he wrote a poem that became one of the most popular patriotic hymns in England. And it's called, I Vow to Thee, My Country. If you were in church at St. Philip's this past week, you heard the first stanza of it sung by the children. Um, they call it Homeland, um, but the original was called, I Vow to Thee, My Country. And uh, as I said, I, I wish you could see the whole thing up there. But the first stanza reads this way, I vow to thee, my country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of my love. The love that asks no questions, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best. The love that never falters, the love that pays the price, the love that makes undaunted the final sacrifice. It's a patriotic hymn, you can see, and that's exactly what a whole generation of young men did in Britain from 1914 to 1918, millions of them. They just celebrated... Remembrance Day, that's when the royal family goes out and they lay the wreath there at the cenotaph in the middle of London. It's because many young men vowed to their country, all earthly things above, entire and whole and perfect, the service of their love. The love that asked no questions but died for king and country, the love that stands the test, that lays upon the altar the dearest and the best. It's such a patriotic hymn because that's what they thought about. They were going to die for what? King and country. But what's wonderful is that Sir Cecil Spring Rice wanted to remind them that there is another country and there is another king and it's an even greater kingdom. And that's why he added the second stanza. You hardly ever hear the second stanza. But it's my favorite. And there's another country I've heard of long ago. Most dear to them that love her, most great to them that know we may not count her armies. We may not see her king. Her fortress is a faithful heart. And her pride is suffering. And soul by soul and silently, her shining bounds increase. And her ways are ways of gentleness. And all her paths are peace. See, the kingdoms of this world, that first kingdom... We vow to thee all earthly things above. It's going to die. It's going to pass away. The Egyptian empire didn't last. It was impressive, but when you go to Egypt today, what do you see? Ruins. 
The Greek Empire was magnificent in its day, but when you go to Greece, what do you see? Ruins. <laughs> the Roman Empire lasted for a thousand years. It was very impressive. But what do you go when you see Rome, Roman ruins today? Nothing, just rubble. The British Empire. Queen Victoria's day, she went, went, went to her uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli and she said, just how much of the world do I really reign over? And he said, ma'am, the sun never sets on your empire. What has happened to the British Empire today? There is no such thing as a British Empire today. There is a loose commonwealth of nations and many of them are wondering whether or not they're going to keep the next sovereign as their monarch. <laughs> the British Empire is passing away. And I hate to say it, but what's going to happen to the American Empire? It will pass away. It will pass away. And it will pass away because that is the fate of all earthly kingdoms. But there is another country we've heard of long ago, most great to them that know her, most dear. You may not count her armies. You may not see her king, her fortress. Is a mighty heart, her pride is suffering, and soul by soul and silently her shining bounds increase. And all her ways are gentleness, and all her paths are peace. That's the other country that Jesus is talking about here. And the way we become a citizen of that kingdom, and the subject of that king, is to recognize our own inadequacy, to come to Jesus Christ, confess our sins, invite him to save us from ourselves. And fill us with our Holy, His Holy Spirit that we may live in a way different from the world. And that's what the Beatitudes are really all about. It's a picture of what it means to live the Christian life. It's a picture. It is descriptive, not prescriptive. I want to repeat that. The Sermon on the Mount is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not live this way and you'll be a citizen of the kingdom. It's if you are a citizen of the kingdom, this is how you will live. So it's a description, not a prescription. And it begins this way. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Some translations say happy. Billy Graham, some years ago, wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Beatitudes, and he called it The Secret to Happy Living. And there's nothing wrong with happy as a translation. Uh, the Greek word is makarios, and it can be translated as happy. At least that's how it gets translated into English. But I think that that is a weak translation for a number of reasons. First of all, it is a weak translation because we have corrupted the meaning of happy. Do you know where our word happy comes from? It comes from the old Anglo-Saxon hap. And the old Anglo-Saxon hap simply meant chance. So happiness is something that happens to us by chance. If you're happy, that means things are going your way. But that is not what Jesus meant here. He meant something that is not dependent on your circumstances. This is why I always say for every great Christian virtue, the world offers us a cheap substitute. You know, you, you can give your wife a gold necklace. Now, you can give her 24 karat gold, or you can give her gold plated. Now, you hand them both to her in a box, and she may not be able to tell the difference, but she begins to wear it, out there on the tennis court, in the shower, and sooner or later she's going to tell the difference what's going to happen. It's going to turn green and so is her neck. And in addition to all of that, probably it's going to tarnish and it's going to fade away eventually. Well, that's what the world does. The world offers us a cheap substitute for every Christian virtue. And the substitute that it gives us for joy is happiness. Joy, the joyful Christian, is the Christian who has contentment and peace regardless of their circumstances. The happy Christian is the one who's happy provided things are going their way. Same thing is true for love. 
Christianity offers us love, and when I say love, I'm talking about agape, that self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. What does the world offer us? Something it calls love, but it means lust. And it fades. It fades with the passage of time. It fades when we get tired of a person, and it fades due to the force of gravity, oftentimes. <laughs> I'll let you sort that out yourselves, but you get the idea. That's what the world does, you see. It offers us cheap substitutes for everything. So Jesus is not talking about happiness here. He's not saying happy are those who are poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, thank God we have Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount because if you read Luke's version of the story, it says blessed are the poor, period. But Matthew expands it. He says blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus is not talking about your economic condition. He's not talking about your bank account or your stock portfolio when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The operative phrase is in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to have a realistic picture of yourself and who you are really before God. And who are we before God? We are broken, fallen sinners who are incapable, completely incapable of saving ourselves. I call this the little engine that can't. How many of you remember that children's book? The little engine that what? Could. And he keeps saying what? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And that's what we're taught. I'll tell you, we do a great disservice to children when we tell them that. I know we want to fill them with a sense of confidence and encouragement, and we want to inspire them. But oftentimes, children try and try and try and fall short of the mark, and because they fall short of the mark, they think there's something wrong with them. You're not doing your child any favor if you say, he says, well, I want to be an astronaut. And he can't get past algebra. You're not doing him any favors. He's never going to be a nuclear physicist if he can't pass high school physics. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Now, that's not a judgment on his worth, but it's no good saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think he can. He knows he can't. Alistair Begg, who is a Scottish minister out in Cleveland, Ohio, some of you perhaps have heard him on the radio, he's great, but he said when he first moved to America, coming from Scotland, he kept hearing about football, football this, football that, and of course football in Scotland is very different from football in America, and so uh, somebody took him to a professional football game, and um, he said he didn't understand anything of what was going on, he didn't understand the rules, he didn't understand the plays. He didn't understand the call. He didn't understand anything. He said, but the thing that interested him the most were the cheerleaders over here on the side, and, and not for the reasons you think. Remember, he's a clergyman. For heaven's sakes, people. No, he said the thing that intrigued him the most about the cheerleaders is they're sitting over there and they're cheering and they've got their pom-poms and they kept shouting, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, yes you can, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, yes you can. And he said, and I'm watching them and it was obvious they couldn't do it. He said, they were being slaughtered on the field. That was the one thing that I understood. And here are these people over there shouting, you can do it, you can do it, and they couldn't. What does it mean to have poverty of spirit? To have poverty of spirit is when you realize, I can't do it. I, I cannot straighten myself out. I cannot clean up my life. I cannot pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I am broken. I am fallen. I am needy. And I'm coming to Jesus Christ. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I'm broken. That's what it means to have poverty of spirit. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they recognize they cannot save themselves and they're turning to the only one who can. 
See, that's what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. To be poor in spirit. That's the prodigal son who came to the end of himself. And he turned and he went home. As long as you think you can, as long as you think you are fine just the way you are, as long as you think you have anything besides your sin to contribute to the process of your salvation, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Let me make that very clear. You will never enter the kingdom of God. He said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who see themselves for what they really are, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, you understand there's a progression here. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who, are, who mourn, he's not just talking about mourning loss. There are many things in this weary old world of ours that make us sad and cause us to mourn. The great injustices that we see in the world, we mourn for that. We mourn for the loss of loved ones who have died. We mourn the loss of our youth. We mourn missed opportunities. There are a whole host of things that I'm sure that you can go ahead and, and make a list of the things that you mourn in your life. But when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, that's not what he's talking about. It flows from that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, come right after it. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, what are they mourning for? their own sins. They're acknowledging that they're poor in spirit and they are mourning for their sin. Now this is very important. And this is why I love the right one liturgy. I know that some churches use the right two liturgy and there's nothing necessarily wrong with it aside from the fact that it's Christianity light. <laughs> but the right one liturgy gets it right. When we confess our sins, we say two things. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and our wickedness. Now that is just powerful theology. And it is straight out of the New Testament and out of the Sermon on the Mount in these first two Beatitudes. Most of the time we think that we are wicked because we sin. But that's not the teaching of the New Testament. We're not wicked because we sin. We sin because we're wicked. That's very different, you see. It has to do with our character. That's why the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit, who recognize themselves for what they really are. So we need to understand we sin because we're wicked. We're not good people. If we were good people, there'd be no need for a Savior. We are loved people in spite of the fact that we are not good. That's the glory of the gospel. That's why it's grace, undeserved, unearned favor. And the other thing that that confession says is our manifold sins and wickedness. It's not just a little mistake here, a little white lie there. It's our manifold, innumerable sins. It's, God is not just interested in what we do. He's interested in why we do it. He's not just interested in what we do. He's interested in what we're thinking. See, that's what it's all about. God is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. You can't hide from him anyway. And so we say what? We acknowledge and bewail. Our manifold sins and wickedness. Acknowledge and bewail. Don't, don't take those words lightly. I know sometimes we do them week after week. But if you listen to those words, let me tell you, folks, they will transform you. If you really think on them, if you really chew on them, and you suck all of the moisture out right down to the marrow, those words have the ability to transform your life. We acknowledge and bewail. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge. It's another thing to bewail. The child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar is sorry he got caught. But that doesn't mean he's sorry he did it. To bewail means you're not only sorry you got caught, you're sorry you did it. 
And that's why you've heard me say that repentance is not simply being sorry for your sins, it means being sorry enough to quit. And that's what it means to be mourning. It is to acknowledge and to bewail your manifold sins and wickedness. That brings us to the third beatitude. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Well, most of us, when we hear that word meek, we assume it is the equivalent of being weak. If you're a meek person, you're a weak person. Well, if you were in Sunday school this past week, you heard me talk a little bit about this because there's this marvelous story in the book of Numbers about Moses. And we're told Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. Pretty, or the meekest man on the face of the earth at the time, at least. Now, if you know anything about Moses, you know he was anything but weak took great courage and strength to go up face to face to Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, and say, let my people go. Took great courage. So what does it mean to say Moses is meek? Well, we said this past week, it means that you do not avenge yourself. You recognize who you are and you trust that God will avenge you. See, if you acknowledge your spiritual poverty before God, if you mourn your sins, you realize you have nothing to defend. You have no honor to defend. You have no pride that needs to be upheld. The first two Beatitudes say that you've emptied yourself. You have nothing. And so if, if you need defended, who's going to have to defend you? God alone is going to have to defend you. And that's what it means to be meek. That's exactly what Jesus was. Jesus didn't feel the need to defend himself when he stood before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate said, do you not realize that I have the power to release you or the power to condemn you? We're told Jesus stood there silent like a lamb before his shears. He knew very well that his father could send down legions of angels to rescue him at that moment. But he did not need to defend himself. God would vindicate him. And God did three days later. You don't need to vindicate yourself God, your Father, will vindicate you. That's what it means to be meek. We go around trying to defend ourselves, to fight for ourselves, to uphold our honor, and oftentimes the only thing we do is bring disrepute upon our king. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? Key word here is righteousness. What does it mean to be a righteous person? It does not mean to be a perfect person. Righteousness means to be in a right relationship. That's what it means to be a righteous person. A righteous person is a person who is in a right relationship. Right relationship with who? Well, first of all, God. How does the Bible depict human beings as enemies of God? That's how we're depicted as at war with God because of our sin. That's why every Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our what? Trespasses. Our sins are a trespass in God's territory. We've trespassed on His territory. The, the root of all sin, and we know this, you've heard me teach now for three years almost, the root of all sin is what? The desire to be like God, to be the masters of our own fate, the of our own destiny, to call our own shots. That's what it means. That's what it is. I'm going to be God. You see, that's the root of all sin. We trespass on God's territory. We're kicking Him off the throne when we do that. And so we're not in a right relationship with God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who long to have a right relationship with God. And not only a right relationship with God, but once they have a right relationship with God, they desire to have a right relationship with others. This is why the passing of the peace is important. I know there are some people that don't necessarily like the passing of the peace, but I want to say to you, it is important for this reason alone. Where it comes in the service you'll notice that the passing of the peace always comes after the confession of sin and the absolution. Why? Because we need to have peace with God. And that's why we confess our sins and receive God's assurance of forgiveness. 
That restores our relationship with God. But then we are to come as the family of God to the table. Thanksgiving's coming. How many of you are looking forward to a tense Thanksgiving dinner? I said tense. Because that's oftentimes the way it is, isn't it? Some Thanksgiving dinners with family, they can be tense. But we don't want that. We want Norman Rockwell. That's what we're longing for. Well, who wants to come to the Lord's table in tension, in bitterness, in acrimony? So you'll notice that the peace comes right after the confession of sin and right before the Lord's table. We have peace with God. Then we make peace with one another, and that's what that right hand of fellowship represents. And then we come as a family of God to that heavenly banquet where He feeds us. It's a powerful and beautiful picture of what it means to be the family of God. And that's what Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that right relationship. And it's one of the reasons why the prayer book warns us that if we have any problem with our neighbor, if we have any conflict with our neighbor, we are not to come to the altar. We are to leave our gift, go and be reconciled to our brothers, and then come to that most heavenly banquet. To do otherwise, the prayer book says, is to drink judgment and to eat judgment. So this is important stuff. That's another matter. That is another matter. But you are to be the party that goes and seeks the reconciliation. Now, oftentimes, <laughs> I want to be clear about this, because this is, this is why the Sermon on the Mount is challenging to us. This does not mean you go to them and you say, you did me wrong, and I uh, just want you to know, I forgive you. <laughs> That's not forgiveness. <laughs> That's, that, that, that is a form of abuse. <laughs> I, I uh, had a conflict with another clergyman years ago. I was on the search committee for bishop, and this clergyman was um, interviewed, and he didn't get passed on to the next level. And I was not at liberty to talk about that um, because it was a confidential hearing. And he came up to me one day at a clergy conference, and he said, I just want you to know I forgive you. God forbid me, I just wanted to punch him in the nose because the reality was I didn't feel I'd done anything wrong. But you see, what he was trying to do was lay something on me, and sometimes that's the way we do it, don't we? There was always somebody out there willing to pack our bags for the next guilt trip. And that's not what we're talking about here. It means that we go and we recognize that we may be in the right, but we are willing to be defrauded. We are willing to be meek and allow God to vindicate. But we seek to restore the relationship if at all possible. I encourage you to do that, particularly with your family members. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, I thought we'd get through all of them. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. But we'll have to wait until after Thanksgiving for that. Let's just put it this way. If you get the poor in the spirit, if you mourn for your sins, if you are meek and you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, between now and that next week, you'll be okay. <laughs> and we can unpack the rest of them then. Because one builds on the other. In fact, if you can hit those first four, the others will happen to you naturally. But this is what it means to be the citizens of the kingdom of God. And as the early church recognized this, as those early believers like Paul, like Peter, recognized their own spiritual poverty and they came to the Lord and they sought forgiveness, that's what Peter said, Oh Lord, I am a sinful man. Depart from me. When we do that and recognize who we are and we come and we seek God's grace and mercy for our manifold sins and our wickedness, he fills us with His Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden we find the strength and the power to begin to live a new life as citizens of a new kingdom, as subjects of a new king, and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He reigns forever and ever.
Hallelujah. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you, Lord, that it is given to us that we might recognize our own fallenness, that we might seek your face, that we might receive your forgiveness, that we might receive the grace of your Holy Spirit to amend our lives and to begin to live no longer for ourselves, but him, for him who died for us and rose again. Grant us the grace, Lord, to be citizens of this kingdom and to live as subjects of our King. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.